When the Breeders' Cup returned to the cradle of horse racing, Kentucky, at Keeneland Racecourse this month, one of those watching the races with intent was the track's longtime former president, Ted Bassett. That's infantry officer Ted Bassett. We'll talk with the man whose life has been dominated by the Marines and horses on this very special Veterans Day edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll sack. And they're off. As they move to the top of the stretch. It's a hip-hopping finish. This is In The Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course, in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. And although the Brain Trust at America's Best Racing has once again excluded this show from its Fan Choice Awards finalists, we'll just continue to churn out the same high-quality stories we've been doing for almost nine years. And thanks to the loyal listeners who continue to enjoy this podcast. It was the last major battle of World War II, and it happened on what was then a little-known island in the South Pacific, Okinawa. The U.S. Army and Marine Corps converged on Okinawa in its final push towards Japan. The Japanese High Command knew that if the Allied forces captured Okinawa, they could use the air bases there to launch a successful attack. When the American troops landed on Okinawa on April 1, 1945, they met no resistance. At first, only when the troops came inland did they realize the Japanese had the Americans right where they wanted them. Among the 180,000 American troops on Okinawa was the future president of Keeneland Racecourse, Marine Infantry Officer James E. Ted Bassett, 4th Marine Regiment, 6th Division. And it is an honor to have the 99-year-old Mr. Bassett here with us to pick up the story of the Battle of Okinawa, and Keeneland for that matter. We welcome Mr. Bassett here to win the gate. So take us through what happened when the Army and your Marine units encountered the Japanese resistance on Okinawa. Well, when we landed on Okinawa, of all things, April 1st, full April Fool's Day, about 0800, had been heavily bombarded both by air and sea, and we landed expecting it to be a really sort of deadly experience of everybody, high casualty. We landed... No resistance whatsoever. We landed without casualty or injury and moved in. And what happened, the Japanese had moved back and set sort of a, well, I wouldn't say a trap, but moved inwardly until we ran into them. Oh, it was three or four days later, we went north. I, I was a rifle platoon leader, a young second lieutenant and head of a uh, Second platoon, Baker Company, First Battalion, Fourth Marines, Sixth Marine Division, and I was wounded on the 15th of April, I think it was, and then I was hit by a mortar as we were evacuating. What was that like? Can you take? Can you paint a picture of what that was like? Well, I, I was criticized a little bit as I got back to the regiment. I, I was evacuated to Saipan, was in the hospital. I got shot through the right hand. 
and then I had hit a mortar in the knee. But when I finally got back and Okinawa was over, and my peers and associates, my God, Bess, what the were you doing? How'd you get hit? Were you waving? Were you waving your hand up in the air, Bassett, and waving to the How in God's name did you get hit in your right hand? It was a sniper shot. I can't tell you, but I'm glad it didn't hit between my eyes. But I don't remember it, baby. I do remember this, that the corpsman bandaged the hand up. I was bleeding badly, but the hand up. And took me probably, as I recall, five or six hours to get to first aid to be because the battle was going on and getting out. They didn't immediately take you sort of, you sort of crawled around. And but then I got got there, and then I was in a field of tent, and then um, I was evacuated to a, a Navy hospital ship. And and uh, I was worried at that time whether I was going to lose my hand. I didn't know anything about it, but it turned out it didn't, and it didn't impair me, and I've been okay since. I was in the hospital ship, the USS Benevolent, and we took to, went to Saipan. I was in the hospital for four or five weeks. Did you get injured a second time at Okinawa as well? No, no, no. No, no, it was it was a combination of probably five or ten minutes. In other words, he got shot through the hand, and one night while you're pulling around, there was a mortar barrage from the Japs. It was it was in the same general time frame, you know, eight or ten minutes. I can't remember exactly. Although the mortar thing was just a fragment in the uh, from the mortar again to my right knee. Now, most of the casualties were suffered in the South. Not many people really talk about what happened in the North, but about a thousand Marines were injured. But that part of the battle was won pretty decisively, as I read. Yeah, well, where we went, where I was at was on on Motobu, M-O-T-O-B-U, and Mount Yataki. And we were attacking that. And uh, we were sort of ambushed, as I recall. But God, it's a long time ago, Barry. But I haven't suffered any ill effects for it. I'm knocking on wood right now. Probably mentally, but uh, not physically. <laughs> well, let me say this. I was some happy-go-lucky Yale grad that I volunteered in the Marine Corps in 43. I went back to Yale under the V-12 program and then sent to Paris Island. And that began a new life for me. And it was the most fortuitous thing that's ever happened to me, was being part of the Marine Corps and having them hammer you. And Paris Island was 16 weeks in those days. And um, out of Paris Island, I, I was sent to Quantico, and then Quantico to, to ROC and then to the West Coast and then to Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal had been secured by about a year and a half, but I was the luckiest thing, Barry, that ever happened to me was I was randomly selected by this salty old sergeant. As we got off the troop ship and went up this salty old sergeant line, there were about 22 of us young second lieutenants, Green, that had been on a troop ship 
with about a thousand other um, young enlisted men. And uh, he walked up and he said, all right, you SOBs, line up alphabetically by height. Well, Jesus Christ, we never had an order like that. We didn't know what to do. So we're stumbling around, and I, being Bassett, B-A, I was uh, and about six feet, three and a half. There were three, I was up in the front line of the 15 or 16 second lieutenants. All right, you four, first four, get your ass out of here. You're going to the fourth Marines. You next six, get over here. You're going to the 22nd. And the rest of you bastards going to the 29th. God help you. Goodbye. Well, that was the luckiest damn thing for me to be randomly selected alphabetically by height to go to the 4th Marines. Now, bear with me on this. The 4th Marines were the famous old China Marines, and they were sent to the Philippines in 41, and they, they were on Corregidor, they were on Bataan, and then Corregidor, and they were ordered to surrender the 4th Marines, the old China Marines, by General Wainwright, as he, he all the U.S. forces were surrendered. You know, out of ammunition, they were wounded, they were sick, and whatnot. And uh, they were packed in a cargo ship and sent to Japan. The 4th Marine Regiment, about, about, I think it was about three or 400. And they were in Japan, they were slaughtered, they were murdered, they were beaten, they were and when we we were selected, the 4th Marine Regiment, to represent the Corps and to land, the first, we were the first Allied troops landing on Japan on the 30th of uh, August. And the peace wasn't signed until, I think, the 2nd. So we landed at Yokosuka Naval Air Base and Sea Base. They had these big concrete runways for these seaplanes that went out in the ocean. Okay. The time came about three or four days later to call out, we're going to assemble for a parade. We were saying, God oh, damn, what are we doing with a parade? They got, got the regimental band, the 4th Marines now, represented the Corps by landing on Japan. The big thing was to put a parade on for the old China Marines that were the 4th Marines. The thing that made a big difference, really, to those younger people like me, and the early days of World War II, the Marine Corps had two divisions, the 1st Division and 2nd Division, later 3rd. But they began to have a smaller thing called Marine Raider Battalion, Edson, Carlson, these famous Marines. These were reinforced battalions having artillery assigned, and they did hit and run. They would go and go on down in the Solomons, Bougainville, and 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 those younger out. They'd be hit and run going into the Japanese. Well, when they said they'd have a parade, we were all a little bit disgruntled. What the hell are we doing? But here's what it was: they got these two or three hundred survivors, emaciated, haunted, hallowed eyes, crippled 
front of, and line. They got them out of the prison camps and brought them back to the Koska Naval Air Base, and we put on this parade for them. The old, we were saluting the old fort, the new fort. And this, the memory of this, is really very, very memorable to me and rather moving as you went by and seeing, seeing these guys emaciated, gaunt, holidized, you know, had been in prison camps for three years, and most of their associates and peers had been murdered or beaten up. It was something, you know, that still stays in my mind. The reason we were picked was our battle record and and combat record and the history of being the only Marine regiment. To, but listen, when we got the uh, orders, well, I was not there then, but... When they got the orders from General Wainwright to surrender, he, all, all of the Allied troops surrendered. The Marine Corps burned their, their regimental. They were not going to give them up. And so in it, <laughs> I didn't mean to get so worked up on this, but in the history of the port, they really still don't act like they surrendered when they didn't give their colors up. They burned their colors, but they did surrender. So that's the Marine outlook on the whole thing. The picture of what you've seen regarding the, the parade and, and the troops there was amazing. What did Japan look like when you landed there, which was after the bombs had been dropped? Okay, this is interesting. We did not know what we were going to run into. The atomic bomb had happened about two weeks earlier, both of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. We had had experience in Guam and Okinawa. We knew they were vicious. They were retaliatory. We had no idea. We were combat-loaded, but there were no bombardments or anything like that. When we landed at Yokosuka Naval Base, there was nothing. There was absolutely, I mean, from that, you didn't see anybody. And as we went in on these concrete runways where for their seaplanes that extended way out under the water, they were stacked rifles, stacked Japanese rifles, in absolutely exquisite squares, which was a sign, you know, maybe there were, you know, 10 or 15 of these stacks, six, eight or seven or eight feet high, hollow inside, stacked in squares. But that was the symbol from the Japanese of surrendering, that they were giving up the arms. And as we moved in from the Japanese pronunciation, Yokosuka, the Marine Corps, Yokosuka. So as we moved in inland uh, and marching and, and jeeps, it, it, we were apprehensive, but you didn't see anybody. You've got to remember that the atomic bomb had gone off two two weeks early and just devastated Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So the the Japanese population, the civilians, were, were frightened to death, and also they were frightened at the th- stories that evolved about the Marines and their hostility. So we saw no one, but as we came in. There would be, in the little villages, there would be white sheets 
uh, from some houses. A sheet came at, you know, up of surrender. We didn't see hardly anybody that first day or second day. And then they began to come out of the house. I think we always felt at that time, Barry, that if it had not been for the emperor and the respect and the autocratic rule that he had, he ordered the civilians in the army to lay down their arms. If it had been a, a civilian, I think I don't know whether any of us would be alive today. Did the people that you did encounter look like they had been hit by a bomb? No. Uh, they looked normal to us. And and we developed a... Now, I'm not too proud to say this, because I always think of myself as a pretty good Marine, but my duty, my duty, after landing, and we'd been there maybe a week or 10 days, and I was appointed the laundry officer of the battalion. My job was set up a laundry for people to be able to get their dungarees and this and that laundered. So we got interpreters in Japanese and shepherded them and fed them, clothed them, made them part of us, and they, and they were our voice of communicating with the civilians. So we put out word of laundry, and does anybody have any experience? And he rounded up about five or six or seven people. And uh, the, the, the laundry bats are these great hollowed bowls that steam came out of, somehow it came out of the bottom, but these great, well, anyhow, I was a proud laundry officer. <laughs> I thought I was a pretty good old rifle platoon leader, but God, my, my job in the piece was laundry. Well, laundry notwithstanding, how hard was it to transition from military life to civilian life after what you'd been through on Okinawa and Japan? I don't think very tough. I'm trying to think back. I was trying to get into um, Harvard uh, Business School, and my grades were not very... I was put on the wait list, and... I was running uh, running around New England from Kentucky. My roommates and and the people that um, I did deal with. Uh, my father, my father was pretty much of a disciplinarian, and he got a little bit of um, uneasy with me, and they uh, think I was just playing and whatnot, and sort of very upset with me of not being able to get into Harvard Business School. So he called me. I, I was up in. Um, Maine at, oh God, what was that? Not Dell Harbor. York Harbor. Well, three or four of us had rented a catch at Essex, Connecticut. Uh, two of them were roommates. Another was Cotty Davidson, who was, a, who was the captain of the Yale football team. And uh, we set out from, hell, we didn't. Cotty was the only guy who knew anything about sailing. Fred and Sandy and I didn't know a goddamn thing about it. And we set out from Essex, Connecticut, and chartered this boat and, and had a couple of It was just a catch. And we landed in York, and I called my father. Uh, his birthday was July 10th to wish him up. And he said, now, Teddy, I still was called Teddy. Let me tell you something. I want you to be in Boston 
on such and such a date at 201 Devonshire. And you be there, you understand? Oh, Dad, what would he do? We're, we're not, we haven't finished the, the hell with your cruise. You're just up there loafing and playing around. I want, well, he worked for um, Jock Quidney for Green Tree Farm here in Kentucky. And uh, he was the um, farm manager and superintendent of it. And the Whitney family owned, now get this, Barry, a tenth of the state of Maine. They had accumulated these vast uh, scores of timberlands. And they started this company called the Great Northern Paper Company that manufactured newsprint for um, newspapers all over the east seaboard. And so, oh, Dan, I, I, I can't. Daddy, you be there. So the others were damn sore at me because I, I had to pay one-fourth of the rent. <laughs> <laughs> they thought I was making this up to get the hell out of there. They made manufactured newsprint. And the interesting thing was, was calling on the publishers. We saw the Herald Tribune, the big, we saw the New York Post, so the Philadelphia Bulletin, we saw the Chester Times, saw the Baltimore Sun, we saw the Washington, um, not the Washington Post, the Washington Times, Charlottesville Daily Progress, Roanoke Times News, Lynchburg Daily Vance. Well, I won't go on any longer, but those were memorable stops on the, on the trailway bus. When we come back on this very special edition of In the Gate for Veterans Day, Ted Bassett moves from a life in the military to a life in horse racing, but his military roots are never far away. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the In the Gate podcast. It's interesting that Ted Bassett, our guest here on In the Gate on the special Veterans Day edition, was talking about working for the Whitney's up in Maine just after the war, a first foreshadowing of a life in horse racing in 1968 after working for the Whitney's and then farming tobacco in native Kentucky, Ted Bassett, U.S. Marine, war hero, wounded on Okinawa, joined the Keeneland Association. What involvement in horse racing had you had before joining Keeneland? Zero. Here is my public entry of my announcement of my coming to Keeneland. I was the former head of the Kentucky State Police. The announcement of my opportunity to come was a one-inch paragraph in the final page of The Blood Horse, written by Kent Hollinsworth. One inch big. That was the importance and the public knowledge of my coming to Keeneland. And the, the quiet and formal question of Bassett, former head of the Kentucky, what's wrong at Keeneland? What's wrong? Is something the matter? that they have to hire the former head of the state police <laughs> to come up here? That was a probably question, no kidding. An old friend of mine now that comes in business, John Y. Brown, he was former governor, and he was the founder of Kentucky Fried Chicken. 
And uh, I had hired a guy called Louis Carabo, who played football at UK. Uh, when I was head of it, he was a very personal person. I put him in charge of public relations. And he, he developed a contact with John Meyer, and he, John Meyer hired him to be the public trainer of the operation of Kentucky Pride, meaning bringing these new people in, training them how to fire a drumstick. Okay, he worked for me about three years or so as when I was head of police. He he worked on John Y. said, you need to get some guy like Bassett in here who's got a firm hand and, and is an old Marine and really believes in discipline. You got all these classmates of yours at UK that you've given franchise to, and they're running, they're all instant millionaires, and you need somebody to get this thing. So John Y. offered me the job as president of Kentucky Pride at 100 thou. I took the job at Keeneland at 35. I think I got 28 when I was head of the state police, 28,000. So <laughs> when I ended up coming here, John Y. Brown was having an annual meeting of the franchisees. And after the um, agenda run, it was Q&A. And this guy raised his hand and he says, John, tell me, Whatever happened to that guy Bassett uh, that you were sort of touting and whatnot, whatever happened? And John's reply was, oh, that was the most fortunate thing that happened to us. Well, what do you mean? You, you were pushing him. Oh, no, no, listen. Anybody that decides to take a job at a little racetrack and not president of the Kentucky fried chicken at a salary of 35000 and not 100 has not got enough sense to fire a drum trick. I've been here 40 years. I've seen a lot of changes. I've seen us, us grow from 147 acres when I arrived, and we have now over 1,100. see a great expansion and of the facilities for the public. And someone asked me the other day, what do you think the most important contribution you may you may have made? And because uh, it wasn't me, although we had a wonderful staff of young people and dedicated. But I, don't, I think one thing, Barry, that doesn't get a lot of attention, we expanded the, the land, land acquisition. And as I told you earlier, from 147 to over 1,100 acres. We we expanded the facilities, put somewhere between seventy to eighty million dollars spread over the years of the grandstand, the clubhouse, and public. But the thing I really think didn't get the attention that possibly it deserves is that we put in the first turf track in Kentucky, and it was a turf track that was developed by these Canadians of um, what the hell is this? Reed Voorhees. And they put it in, he had this new new formula for a turf track. He had put it in uh, at um, the fairgrounds and he put it in at Bay Meadows. The secret of what he did, instead of building a turf track on turf soil, he built it on sand, 15 inches of sand and then three inches of, of turf. They, 
idea of, of the thing, it would drain in one minute what it would take the old historic soil dirt to drain in 30 to 40. So it was a big thing both at Bay Meadows and at Fairgrounds where they had excessive rainfall during winter and spring. And we had it ourselves. So it was a wonderful, and it worked. And it's, we still have it here today. It's still a success. But the turf training, turf I think, opened up the opportunity for us to attract a wider spectrum of trainers and owners that we gave a greater opportunity with the, the turf racing. And I think it's been really one of those, it, it's been successful, but biggest element of us being able to expand and maintain a first-class racing operation. Well, it only took you one year to become president of the association. Oh, oh no, here, here, I was not hired as president. The inference to me by Louis Hagen, the um, chairman and senior trustee, and the other two trustees, you come in and spend a year learning the job, and it seems to be a fit for us, and you will then make you president. But that I did not come in as president. What was it like becoming president after only one year? Louis Hagen, Princeton graduate, and a very prominent Kentuckian, and breeder himself, and uh, one of the early uh, members of the founding board of Canelum. He was pro bono. Lexington was beginning to grow. We had I-64 and I-75 crisscrossing across Kentucky. It opened Ohio. It opened uh, Tennessee. And we're beginning to get crowds and think our facilities were limited. And this and the uh, the corporate agenda, there hadn't been much change at all in, in the staff membership. And they're pretty set in their own ways of what they do. Louis was prono, pro bono, would come in maybe an hour or two a day, and that was in this. The others were sort of silk. It was tough as hell. You know, here this guy from the outside coming in. I knew most of the directors socially and things, but I had zero experience in racing, or, and I didn't know a fetlock from a forelock. <laughs> so it it was a difficult uh, year or so. The thing that saved me in the Kentucky State Police, if I'd gone around as a Yale graduate and whatnot, I wouldn't have gotten a time of day from these old state policemen. But I was a former Marine. I was a former combat. I was former decorated. And I did not go out with a manifesto. I went out to every single state police post. There were 16 across the state of Kentucky from Ashland to Paducah. And I went out I had been deputy commissioner of the department and the state police were on it. And I had an acquaintance or name acquaintance rather than probably a face acquaintance with most of them. Or there were about 340 state policemen at that time. I went out with the idea, what do you feel is the major problem we have to progress? What do we have other than salary? What do, What problems do we have other than is it health? 
Is it working hours? Is it cruising? What? Tell me what we need to work together to get done. If you had this job, what the hell would you do? And that sort of gave me a little bit of an entree. But then I used the same sort of ammo when I came here. I knew most of the big breeders, but uh, the thing was I went to their office and said, what can we do to make Keeneland better? What do you feel is the major issue that we should recommend? Keeneland means many things, of course, more than just racing. The sales are among the sports most important in the world, and the library has become the de facto archive of the entire sport here in the United States. At what point, Mr. Bassett, did you sense that the Keeneland brand name would have the impact on the industry that it has had? I think Sir Ivor, Alice Chandler bred and sold library for 42000 And it was brought by the Europeans, Sangster and O'Brien. I think when Sir Ivor put us on the map that you can take an American bred thoroughbred and you can train him and be successful with our European training methods. When Sangster and O'Brien took Survivor and made him a champion in Europe, it increased not only the awareness, but that the American thoroughbred was not totally consumed with speed. I think the European thing early, probably in my early days, that the emphasis, the European perception was not the mile and a half, mile and three quarters, or those old stakes, but speed, the short distances. And when Sir Arbor proved he could beat the others, I think that was the catalyst that opened the door. And it sort of opened the door of us. In those days, we didn't know the difference between a pound and a peso. We didn't know the difference between them. We knew nothing about foreign exchange. So that was the challenge. And I had, I had um, David Hedges. We had to find out some way to get our Keeneland catalogs through the British and French customs. It was, you know, they couldn't believe that we're sending this thing and not charging some sort of price for it. That was a hurdle we ran, ran into. The Irish were a little bit more open because of their breeding industry. And, but it was a hard thing of us getting our information over there. And not only publicity, but the catalog. It was tough. We couldn't get it through the customs because they couldn't believe we were giving it away. So I hired David Hedges, who had worked at the International Racing Bureau, the IRB, to represent us. And he opened the door. He was a bright young guy and a wonderful person, and I knew nothing. I had not been over there. So he told me, he said, no, Ted, Keeneland needs to show its face over here. You just can't be these typographical figures. You've got to see that you're flesh and blood, that you're, you're somebody that they would converse with, and not just some name. So that began our trips to Europe and around the world, and D.G. Van Cleef, 
And then Bill Greeley came, and he did the same thing. And uh, that was that was a slow opening. But what really opened it, Barry, what really opened the door to international sales for Keeneland was the way the horses performed in greatest stakes across the world. Now, North American bread proved its value and merit on the race course. And that did more to open up and create a market for for the Kentucky bread and, and to boost Keeneland sales out of really just a small breeding operation into a world factor. You mentioned D.G. Van Cleef, who, of course, for years was associated with the Breeders' Cup. You left Keeneland in 1986, and then two years later, in 1988, you took over as president of the Breeders' Cup. At that time, did you even dare to dream that the races might one day be held at Keeneland, as they now have been twice, and there'll be a third two years from now as well? I mean, Keeneland's capacity is not exactly what Churchill Downs, Santa Anita, or Belmont Park can hold. You're absolutely 100% right. There were two reasons. I was used to dealing with Naira. I was used to dealing with Santa Anita, Hollywood, Gulfstream. And to think, I wore a black hat here for years that when I was celebrating, I never wanted to consider King. It was not so much the fear of failure, but the fear I had was dealing with the home folks, the corporate members, the Keeneland Club membership, and the Keeneland boxes. Uh, I'm going to be careful how I say this, but during the time leading up to the Breeders' Cup, I would say safely that I knew on the box holders, I knew 85, 90% of them personally. And probably during my tenure in that time, I had something to do with 35 or 40% of them getting the box. Most, it was not difficult. Most of, we, most of it, we kept it in families. If they had a son or daughter that was involved in thoroughbred racing, we automatically, if one of them died, is to pass the box on to the surviving relative. That was easy. But thinking of being a Breeders' Cup here, and me dealing with Nara, dealing with Hollywood, uh, dealing with uh, Santa Anita, Gulfstream, the argument that, see, the Breeders' Cup takes over the whole box, but you took all the boxes away. And I thought, God damn, I don't want to have to put up with that crap at home. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> mad at me. Everybody pissed off. And, uh, and then I thought of the grandstand space, and I thought of Nara, and I thought of Santa. And I said, God, we can't fit. Then I thought, I don't want to put up with. You know who's, who, um, what the hell, Mike Letus and Mike Traeger? I know who Mike Traeger is, SMTI, Sports Marketing Internet. They were hard-nosed New York markers that started this firm, and they they were absolutely responsible for putting us on television and NBC. We would never have been worth, the Breeders' Cup wouldn't have had any except if we weren't on NBC or a national network in those early days. That's what really got us off the ground. And they were hard-nosed New Yorkers. And I didn't get along with them too well in the early days, but as I got to understand and appreciate them, but then SMTI had their sponsors, too, Anheuser-Busch and so forth. 
And I thought, God damn, I don't want to put up with all that here at Canaan, hearing that argument and the people and making it too commercial. (laughs) But when they came in here five years ago, an American pharaoh came in and, listen, I asked them to, I said, do do me, I'm I'm really proud of what you've accomplished. I'm really proud of that breeder's guy. But look, don't tell me these tenders figures is 50,000 now. We couldn't, you can shoehorn 50,000 people. Oh, that's the bastard, that's the figures. Uh, Now look, I know how hard it was for me to get 20. I did everything I could. I cheated. I ran people through the turnstiles. To we got nineteen two, nineteen six, nineteen eight for years. I said, God damn it, we got to get twenty thousand there. <laughs> but to tell me you got fifty thousand in here, but it was a great day. The staff did a wonderful job. American Pharaoh didn't hurt. We started this discussion talking about your time in the service and then your time in racing. <laughs> There is one story that sort of ties these two worlds together, and that's the story of a horse named Sergeant Reckless. For our audience who's not familiar with Sergeant Reckless, she was a small chestnut mare in Korea who a U.S. Marine purchased from a stable boy at the track. The soldier needed the mare to haul a 100-pound rifle, which was named Reckless during the Korean War. Sergeant Reckless, and she was officially made a sergeant at one point, served in several important battles, was wounded twice, and occasionally hauled the rifle without any humans guiding her. Sergeant Reckless was written up in one of the most popular magazines in the country in the 1950s, the Saturday Evening Post, and she became famous. What did you think, Mr. Bassett, back in 2016 when you first heard about this mayor? Well... Robin Hutton, I really am crazy about her, too. Robin Hutton's a writer. I've been chairman of what's called the Marine Corps Coordinating Council of Kentucky, some elongated goddamn name. But <laughs> what we did was there were three of us that, that were Marines, and we said, God damn it, we've got to do something on November 10th, the birthday, but God, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, Let's get this cab of breakfast. So three of us started. We had breakfast in the Canaan kitchen on paper plates, cold coffee, and awful spam. That started it. <laughs> and then we, we quietly grew it and grew it. We went to the Thoroughbred Club and conned them into doing the breakfast. Now we're up to 110. We're getting Marines all over Kentucky, southern Ohio, northern Tennessee. We have raised for the uh, Semper Fi Fund over a million dollars on this little thing. But we have a top-notch speaker. We canceled this thing this year, unfortunately. But we've had, we've had assistant commandants. We've had... Uh, uh, you know, the Navy Cross people, we've had, oh, all outstanding Marines come in and talk to us. Uh, so I was chairman of the Kentucky Horse Park and uh, had Robin Hudden come over and speak on, just to give us talk, who, what the hell is this Sergeant Reckless thing? What, what? She came on and, God damn, I just got moved. And I said to myself, we're honoring the thoroughbred horse at the horse park. We're honoring the standard bread. We're honoring the competition horses. We got a secretariat statue, but there's no place for the military horse. So I said, God damn it. What about reckless? 
So I go to Robin and I said, yeah, I hear you've got a statue. Well, she got a statue at Quantico and she got a statue out at Camp Palo. There's two statues. I said, well, what would it cost? Well, it cost about a couple hundred thousand dollars. I said, well, are you sure? And said, so I talked to Gwen Verdon, the sculptress. I said, listen, there ought to be a Marine Corps horse at the horse park. And what can what kind of deal can we get on? You've already got this thing cast now. You already got the the you know the statistics and the measurements. Why do you add? Well, anyhow, I conned down a little bit. I think I, I think it was about two forty. But that's how the statue got there because it needed to be a military horse at the Kentucky Horse Park. You talk to the horse park; it's one of the top tourist visitations. Listen, that horse grabbed the Marine Corps. When the Marines took over Seoul and went to the racetrack and tar- opened the doors and turned three or four hundred racehorses loose, just loose, wandering around, and the Marines confiscated this one horse and tried to race it. No, it, it didn't. It made a pack horse out of her. But here's the damn thing now. It's not just carrying the ammo up to the top of Vegas, the hill. It's not just doing that. It's carrying the dead and the wounded back. And that's what clutched us. And that's what really made it. And now now he's a, she's a hero in the Marine. She's an equine hero in the Marine Corps. People don't know about that reckless. The Kentucky Horse Park dedicated its statue in May of 2018. How do you think your service in the Marines affected the way you approached your professional career? I think it was a fundamental influence. I don't know how successful I've been, but I think the Marine Corps makes you feel a sense of purpose. This is not an egotistical thing. It makes us think of doing something. You know, you can't sit on your ass and not do something. And you can't be Johnny Goodfellow running around trying to be Mr. Good do all these things. You, uh, most of the things I've done and been partially successful with have not been sought. They sought me. Sergeant Reckless thing, uh, I did seek when, 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 you know, I heard Robin and this and that, but... I've been fortunate to have the opportunity on these things. It could take us about an hour to list all of the honors that Ted Bassett has earned in his two main careers. Among them, though, a Purple Heart and Presidential Unit Citation for his bravery in the military, the Eclipse Award of Merit for service to the American racing industry, and last year, in 2019, Ted Bassett was inducted into the Racing Hall of Fame as a pillar of the turf. Thank you so much for your incredible service to your country and for sharing all of these stories with us. And most of all, we wish you good health and peace on this Veterans Day. Thank you so much, sir. Okay. Take good care. Good talk to you. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, the iTunes Store, TuneIn.com, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show, won't you? It really helps others to find us. 
Remember, you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope you're safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.